I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. So, Good. Dr. Peel, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, it's, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. It's an honor to be here. Honestly, it was fun meeting you guys at the Northeast Georgia Trauma Conference, and uh, glad to be back in touch. Yeah, it's it's always a good time up there. So, if you don't care, just uh, you know, introduce yourself to the audience. Um, introduce, you know, just tell us about you know where you grew up, where you're from originally, um, where you did your training. You know, give us a uh, give us a good bio. Sure. So I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, middle of the state. Um, is that a tobacco country? It is tobacco country. I was a <laughs> couple miles from Reynolds Tobacco and smelled the, the fresh tobacco <laughs> coming across every morning. So nice. Uh, nice. good memories of that right next to Wake, campus of Wake Forest University also. And from an early age, uh, knew I wanted to be a doctor. I followed my uh, grandfather around who was a, a country general practitioner in Nebraska, um, mm. also had a farm and um, spent a lot of time out there with him and thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a primary care doc in a rural area and own a farm. So those are those were a couple of my goals. And I didn't end up doing any of those <laughs> except becoming a physician, um, but uh, stayed in school, stayed in North Carolina for college, uh, detoured to Germany, interestingly, for a year of study and then came back and and I uh, went to med school here at UNC in Chapel Hill. Oh, right on. And um, again, several detours into the various specialties that I started out in, but eventually went back and trained in pediatric critical care. I ended up loving, uh, finding myself most at home, taking care of the sickest child. And that was kind of what I wanted to ultimately do. Got involved in pre-hospital care through our critical care transport as well. And... Um, just love the practice of emergency and critical care trauma and uh, critical care transport. So those those things are kind of all nicely combined in the work I get to do today, which is as a pediatric critical care doc at Wake Med, which is, to be clear, not Wake Forest. So Wake Forest is where I grew up there in Winston-Salem. Wake Med is in Raleigh, the community hospital and level one trauma center uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh with several other folks, got to help build a children's hospital there at Wake Med um, and served in, leader, in a leadership role there for many years until I started my company about 10 years ago. And so at, at that point, I left all of my administrative roles, but kept my clinical work. So I still am at the hospital as an ICU doc uh, much of the time. And then the rest of my time, I spend traveling around teaching, um, doing research, working with the DOD on some innovations we're creating and um, um, joining podcasts like this. And I, it's <laughs> part of the privilege of what I get to do is just talking with folks like you guys and hoping to spread the word of how we can improve trauma care for adults and kids. Awesome. Very cool. Very, very cool. So what, what about, um, you know, you said that uh, you wanted to take care of the sickest child. I do not feel that way. <laughs> what What yeah. about pediatric? A lot of folks don't. Yeah, yeah. What What sucked you into that? Like, what What brought Again, you? Again, I I thought world? I was going to be a primary care doc in a in a smaller community, and somehow during my training, um, and I trained in internal medicine and pediatrics, so two specialties. 
I always felt most at home in the ER and the ICU with a sick child. That was just kind of what I was drawn to. So I feel like I'm made to be there. Mm. I know it's not everyone's comfort zone. So uh, it just happens to be ha- what I'm made to do. And so I, I thrive there and I, I love it. Um, and interestingly, my, my professional mission statement has kind of become, I take care of sick kids. I teach others to do it, how to do it. And I try to invent new ways of doing it better. That's kind of my threefold, mm. what I'd like to do with my professional life. So pediatric critical care has just kind of become the, the, is the confluence for all of those, all, all of those goals. Sticking with kind of the background, take us through yeah. a little bit more on um, how you got involved on the pre-hospital side. Yes. And uh, the, the specifically the train, you know, w- whether or not it's on the transport side, uh, critical care transport side, or the, uh, you know, the, the first responder side. Yeah, absolutely. Such a good question. And I really had, you know, many docs who are medical directors have spent time as a paramedic and have known that world before they went to med school. And I don't, I haven't, I did not have that privilege or that experience, unfortunately. But honestly, I remember one night we had a super sick kid um, that we needed to cane late for ECMO. And for some reason at our hospital at UNC, we couldn't, the equipment was down or there was some reason we could not do it. And I jumped in the truck with our transport team to drive down the road to Duke um, where they had that capacity. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a difficult job. We're, we're rolling down the road at 60 miles an hour. Can't hear anything. The child is at risk of dying. And I had, I had just a renewed respect, respect for what um, our EMTs and paramedics and nurses and respiratory therapists do on the way to the hospital out in the field with much more limited resources than we have, than we're privileged to have in the hospital. And so I just, at that point, I was like, wow, what an interesting world. I would love to get more involved in that. And just over time, there became opportunities to help teach and run SIMS and help in leadership with our critical care transport team. Um, So I've been doing that for a number of years as one of the medical directors and no formal role in a 911 agency, but but, uh, have had the opportunity to help again, do a lot of education and uh, case reviews and just um, teaching around the care of sick kids. Because as you mentioned, um, Brandon, they scare, kids scare folks. And so I'm trying to translate concepts I've learned over the years into uh, maybe more simple approaches to how to manage that critically ill child. So just kind of been an evolution, Jason, over the years. Uh, and I have developed a love for um uh, my pre-hospital colleagues, and honestly, it's one of the greatest pr- privileges I have to work with and teach and learn from my um, friends who are in the pre-hospital world. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, kind of shifting gears into uh, what you do now, um, you know, the, something that shook me uh, whenever we watched you present um you talked about the leading cause of traumatic or pediatric traumatic death. Um, take us, you know, as we, as we kind of segue into the topics that we want to talk about tonight, you know, yeah. specifically pediatric trauma, hemorrhage, um, and, you know, the directions that you are recommending for EMS providers 
um, and emergency department providers uh, to go in whenever they are treating those patients. If you don't mind, you know, share that with uh, with our audience about. Yeah, know, absolutely. So I, I, I kind of start all my trauma talks with the stat that is peds, pediatric trauma is responsible for more deaths than any other cause. And that it's also responsible for more death than all other causes combined. So all the things that children's hospitals, maybe CHOA, like in your area, CHOA, or my own children's hospitals here in the area, all the important things that we care that we take care of, sepsis and cancer and congenital heart disease, and you, you name the disease that definitely needs and deserves a lot of research and, and focus on caring for well. If you combine all those things together, they're dwarfed by the amount of injury and sadly death that is caused by traumatic injury, by traumatic causes. And so if we want to make an impact, and I've been, I was impressed with that stat when I first heard it quoted by a pediatric trauma surgeon in our state years ago. And I thought, wait a minute, if that's true, shouldn't we be applying much of our resources in any, in, in any environment, pre-hospital or in a hospital or in the ED toward getting better at caring for those kids? Because if that's what kids die of, let's go there and, and put our focus there. And then um, over the past few years, um, whereas the leading cause of traumatic injury had been motor vehicle collisions, motor vehicle accidents, it's been now surpassed by firearm injury. So the leading cause of death um, in kids, and actually I believe in adults, uh, kids and adults up to age 45 is now firearm injury. And <clears throat> that's been anecdotally true in my own experience. I, I had just this week, two kids um, who were victims of gun violence, and we just see it more and more and more and more, and kids, more kids are dying of it. Um, and so I think it is worth all of our time as uh, critical care and emergency providers to think about how do we approach that patient who's a victim of gun violence and how can we best care for them? Obviously, it would be right for us to also think about the root causes of this trend and how we can impact it elsewhere in our lives. But as providers, my focus here is how I'm going to take uh, a critically injured child and give them the best chance of survival. And so that then translated into the concept of how do we better provide resuscitation for shock? Because many patients who are who are victims of gun violence are going to bleed to death. And so the one of the focuses of my research and innovation and clinical care has been thinking about how do we best care for someone who's in shock? How do we treat them rapidly when minutes matter? Get them stabilized until they can get to the surgeon who can fix the underlying cause and hopefully allow them to walk out of the hospital. So um, kind of a, a continuum of trauma into now the trend of gun violence, helping me and us as a group think about how we better care of for critically ill patients with shock. Yeah, and, and I don't want to gloss over that, man, because that was incredibly shocking, so much so that, you know, after you said that, I went home and, you know, I'm flipping around looking through studies and 100%, not only was it accurate, um, I didn't realize, but even on mass, you know, mass shootings, um, one third of most victims in mass shootings since 2015 are under the age of 18. Well, I actually didn't know that stat. That's, that's sad and sobering, isn't it? 
Yeah. 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 I mean, wow. it's, you know, and it's, it's an issue. I can't, you know, what do you know of anything that's being done or being proposed in order to, uh, well, let me, let me ask a different question rather. What work has been done to dive into that stat? Are there certain demographics um, and areas of the country where that is more pre prevalent or is it yeah. everywhere? So I'd recommend if anyone, if you or any of your listeners are interested, just go to the gun violence archive. There's one source. There's one source of truth for all data relevant to gun violence, kids and adults in the U.S. So every single shooting ever recorded is mapped there. And if you pull up the map, it's urban areas mostly. Obviously, we have it in the rural areas too, but the bulk of it, the bulk of the violence is uh, in poorer, generally urban areas. And um, so, you know, those kids are definitely disproportionately affected. And um, some of the research and work I've had the privilege of doing has been in some of those worlds in, in New Orleans and other uh, big cities where unfortunately there's a lot of gun violence. So, yep. As you would expect, that's probably where most of it's coming. Although we're all impacted, you guys in your hospital, I'm sure are seeing it. And, um, I know downtown Atlanta is seeing a lot of it as well. How, how have we seen, uh, with a lot of the stop the bleed, um, stuff, you know, not just the tourniquets, but the education, have we seen a drastic, uh, decline in deaths or, uh, a decent, uh, increase in benefits since a lot of that's been rolled out nationwide? You know, I can't speak to that, Jason, specifically. Um, I do know, I mean, just again, anecdotally, we see more tourniquets coming in and people that might have bled to death from an extremity injury are probably living because of it. But if you think about where people are getting shot, it's not in a tourniquetable location, sadly, right? Yeah. This is penetrating torso trauma, non-compressible torso hemorrhage, and we can't fix that typically you neither you nor I in our environments can fix that typically. Yes, stop the bleed. Important, obviously, for that lay that lay folks and first responders know how to manage um, hemorrhage by direct compression and applying tourniquets. But what we we continue we have continued to see an increase in mortality, and that's probably just because the volume of these injuries are happening and the severity of them is increasing. And so we need other techniques getting folks to the fat hospital faster, but one of my favorite topics, getting blood to the patient faster to temporize and stabilize them so they can get to the surgeon and get fixed. So that's that's probably more important. So I know we want to talk about the blood administration here um, in, in a minute, but I want to kind of go back uh, to you saying getting them to the hospital. Um, as, uh, as Brandon stated, um, that... Uh, you know, kids are difficult. Uh, we, we don't get to see a lot of it. Uh, people are often frightened by it. And that's not just first responders show up in any emergency department that's yep. not uh, ready to treat a kid or doesn't have on-site surgery that uh, is ready to treat a kid. And um, people go absolutely insane. Right. So talk through a little bit about the importance of the initial destination. And in some of your, you know, you, you do a lot of case studies, you do a lot of case reviews and get a lot of feedback. Um, what are what are kind of some of the not necessarily guidelines, but kind of the expert consensus on where should these kids go? What are some of the limitations that you've come across uh, with speaking with some of the EMS colleagues on uh, destination and um, resources? Yeah, that's such a good question. And obviously it varies by 
geography, right? And um, I think the the patient who's critically ill bleeding to death needs to be at a level one trauma center, ideally. And and not everyone has access to those. So a trauma center, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a peds trauma center. I think ideally kids go there and probably in some ways get better care at a dedicated pediatric trauma center. But my own center is not a pediatric trauma center designation. It's a level one trauma center. We take care of a ton of kids and we do it well. So I think um, when, when choosing where to, what the destination is going to be, I guess you have to balance how quick you're going to get there and the expertise of the center. And I think every agency and every geography is different on that. But if someone's bleeding to death, death, they probably needed to get to a place where a surgeon can manage them and provide the transfusion that they need. And hopefully you have it. Hopefully you have that blood in your in your ambulance. And I know it's coming, it's coming to Georgia uh, now and is in a number of agencies. But I think that's number one for me. And then two, um, kind of planning out ahead of time where the best center is going to be to manage that kid. And as you mentioned, Folks are often scared of kids, and so there's a big difference in terms of people's perception between a two-year-old and a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old and where I'm going to take that patient. But interestingly, the management of that patient, if they're in hemorrhagic shock, is, is quite similar. We need access. We need resuscitation. We need basic airway management. And I don't know that this we're going to have time to get into all those details on this podcast, but um, I, I often you often hear the statement that... Uh, Kids are not just little adults, but the converse is actually true that adults are really just big kids. And so the, the management principles of a patient, a, a child with hemorrhagic shock and trauma, isn't that much different, to be honest, than the management. The priorities are no different than the management of one, of an adult with a similar injury. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question well. It's a tough, it's a tough one, um, but get them to the place where... Uh, they can get definitive hemorrhage control, and that's going to involve a surgeon usually. And then I will also say, and we'll, I'm maybe jumping too far ahead, but the answer is not for, for a super sick trauma patient is not always just apply more diesel. Our paramedics in the field can provide a lot of critical, critical care and change outcomes by stopping the bleed, basic airway management, and first, if possible, effective resuscitation with blood products, which is why I want to see them more commonly deployed in EMS agencies. And we, we all know the complexities around that. It's hard to get it done, but the places that are using it are showing great outcomes in both kids and adults. Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely want to dive into that. I do not want, I, you know, I kind of want to throw a teaser out here. I want you at some point in this conversation to talk about the, uh, paper that, uh, that yeah. we were talking about on the phone I want earlier. To. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's going to be awesome. Um, so, so let's kind of transition into, you know, what, what do we do with these patients? Just like you said, uh, it's a non-compressible spot. You know, it may be like in the trunk or the, the axilla it could be somewhere in that area. Abdomen, whatever. Yeah. 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 Or even in the face, you know, facial injuries yes. as well. Um, you know, I remember, in your presentation, you talked about a, uh, a, uh, dog attack victim. Yep. Um, so, I mean, yeah, any of these massive hemorrhage patients, what is your, what is your recommendation as far as, uh, how we should change the way we look at them or the way we approach right. them rather? Yep. So kind of the, the big concept that I'm, I'm trying to 
propagate is circulation first. So we're we're trained to think A, B, C, right? Airway A is the first letter in that sequence. And without an airway, we're going to die. Especially but, kids. That's how exactly. we're trained. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. So kids are more likely to, to die of a respiratory cause, a cardiac arrest from a respiratory cause, whereas guys our age are more likely to die of a V-fib cardiac arrest. But in a trauma patient, we need to think a little differently. And even ATLS is still a little stuck back into the ABC sequence. GCS of eight, intubate. If the patient is in shock, their mental status is abnormal, we need to secure the airway first. And we do need to secure it at some point, most likely. But if we focus on that, what are we missing? We may be missing interventions that stop bleeding and reverse shock, number one, by not getting to the tourniquets, the delivery of blood, TXA, calcium, other things they need. And we may actually cause harm. So I can't remember, um, Brandon, if I got into this much in the in the lecture down there in Georgia, but the placement of an advanced airway for any patient with severe hemodynamic compromise can actually lead to worsening shock or cardiac arrest. So someone who's lost a bunch of blood, who we then place an ET tube and put positive pressure in the chest is likely to have worst, worsened cardiac output because of that. We basically are putting pressure in the chest so that no blood can get back to the right heart and their blood pressure falls. And in the sickest ones, we may actually precipitate an arrest. So convert our thinking to circulation first. What this patient is dying of is hemorrhagic shock. So we need, yes, basic airway interventions, open the airway, apply some oxygen, but let's stop the bleed where we can. Back to your point about stop the bleed. Get access, and that's usually going to be IO in an extreme situation. If you can pop an IV in, awesome. But I'm a big fan of IOs. And by the way, I always place them in the distal femur in kids. Mm. Um, don't have to. Do what you're, we're most comfortable with. The tibia seems easier, but the femur is going to be more solid and give you better flow. So that's my that's my um, site of choice these days. Yeah, to your and point, I, I think people need to train on that more probably. Absolutely. And it's, it's a hard one. It, it's a little anxiety provoking if you haven't done it because you can't feel the bone as well, but it's more effective. Um, and then we need to give blood. And again, I, I imagine in Georgia, what, 5% of agencies have blood now? No, I think it's that high. Not even that high? Maybe five agencies. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. It's probably a little <laughs> bit more, but um, probably not many outside of uh, air medical. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking ground, of course. Yeah. Uh, 911. Um, so there are a couple of big ones about to go live, I believe. So there, there's some news coming out about that soon, we hope. Um, but let's talk about, let's assume we have blood on the, on the ambulance, okay? Which is not common, but let's assume it. That's what that patient needs. Someone who's in shock, meaning tachycardia, altered mental status, poor perfusion, low blood pressure, low entitled CO2, blood is what they need. And what we found, just to jump a little ahead, Brandon, in a couple of our studies is, those patients who get resuscitated quickly may actually wake up, become stabilized, start talking, don't need an endotracheal tube. So we often, I often teach resuscitate before you intubate. That's probably a concept you guys have learned for years and years. Resuscitate before you intubate. Septic shock patient needs fluid first. A hemorrhagic shock patient needs blood first. And then secure the airway. But guess what? If you resuscitate effectively, you may not need the tube. So resuscitate and you may not need to intubate, at least in the ambulance where it's more risky. And so uh, what we're seeing again, in some of the studies that 
uh, have recently been published is effective resuscitation results in a healthier patient when they arrive at the hospital, even at the cost of a few minutes extra of care. So mm. applying diesel is not, many surgeons will push back on this and say, I don't want those guys delaying care. I want them to get them to me and we'll sort it out when they get to the hospital. But guess what? We're losing precious minutes out there by not resuscitating first. And so adequate pre-hospital resuscitation, even at the cost of slightly increased transport time, is saving lives. No question about it. And um, resulting in a healthier patient when they arrive to the trauma bay, there's less chaos than when they arrive and a more thoughtful uh, clinical approach can be taken once they get there. So I know I'm throwing a lot at you at one time, but it's just no, such this an is exciting great. topic, you know, that... Um, I love talking about it. No, and, and and let me just, if you can expound on that a little bit. Um, and there were, you know, I think probably this this conference that we're talking about that uh, that we first heard you at, there um, was some data that was presented that I found uh, a little bit surprising that okay. uh, I think there's a, there, there's a, a belief that, oh, this is, this works well for the rural area. Right. Long transport time. Correct. Yeah, sure. But what about the short transport times? Right. I mean, I think at the conference, we heard that case of a, a guy where a tree fell on his truck and he was pinned forever and took a long time to get him back to the hospital. You think, OK, of course, you need blood in that situation. That guy's going to die long before he gets to the hospital. And again, the, the pushback has been urban center, 10 minute, eight minute, seven minute transport. No, just get to the hospital and they'll they'll figure it out. We can't we can't waste any, we can't do anything during that time. And we're we're actually showing in a number of agencies that that's actually not true. You can provide a couple units of blood and TXA, and whether you think you should give it or not, calcium, which I do think we should be giving with blood, that can all be accomplished in a short window while the truck's moving and result in dramatically better outcomes. So the diesel therapy is not the only thing that's needed in that moment. It's actually critical care and resuscitation. Um, so yeah, and, and, yeah, and I can put you, I can send you the papers you guys can put in the show notes if you want some of the data on this. You know that that really plays in. We we a lot on this podcast, and really just in our career, we um, pretty passionate about systems of care and stop yes. working in these silos of it's an EMS patient they're going to do certain things, then an ED patient, and then a surgery patient, rather than you know some of the, one of the things, especially with um, we took when we you know in our world kind of day to day STEMI cardiac arrest some of yep. these it may be better to have a longer scene time to Correct. start therapy and communication early Correct. to get that. Ultimately, you're going to get that better treatment rather than just this idea of, uh, you know, like you said, applying diesel. Scoop and run. And right. And that's true. That's totally true of arrest, particularly pediatric arrest. It's, it's pretty well documented that a scoop and run approach is worse, but working the patient effectively on the scene first, CPR, defibrillation if necessary, airway, access, before moving to the truck and getting to the hospital results in better outcomes. Yeah. Are you trained to pit crew approach? Oh yeah. Go ahead with that. So there, you can apply the pit crew approach to trauma as well. Absolutely. And that's what oh. a lot of these agencies are doing, right? So there's the dedicated, so new Orleans just happens to be one of the cities I've been able to work with uh, the teams there and they, they have a blood medic. They call it the blood medic and Someone's in charge of airway, someone's in charge of access, someone's in charge of getting the blood ready and giving it. And awesome. they they apply that pit crew just like you would in a in an arrest. It's 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 pretty smooth. And I same bet that blood medic of... is uh he, he's happy <laughs> he or she is happy to be the blood medic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Are you at liberty to, to talk about the study? Absolutely. So yeah, it's published now. Um 
again, I'll, I don't know if you have show notes on this one, but if if you do, I can give you the link. And um, so basically, and just full disclosure, I created a device that's used in this study. So uh, I just want to give my, that, that I do have a conflict. So the life flow is a rapid infusion that we use in a lot of agencies now. And uh, that was one of my inventions years ago after struggling with many trauma deaths where I felt like we didn't uh, transfuse rapidly enough. So that's a whole other podcast and story if you ever want to hear it, how that thing came about. But uh, uh, good number of agencies, big urban agencies are using it now as their blood delivery method. And the the idea is if you have a patient in hemorrhagic shock and you hang up the unit, especially if you have an IO and hope it goes in, you may have a few hundred mils in by the time you get to the hospital. You just can't. It's hard to effectively resuscitate when minutes matter in these situations. So it's a handheld rapid infuser, and they're able to to get through a humeral head IO, a couple of units of blood in, in that short transport time. Um, but they have to do it actively. This is active resuscitation. And um, I really had nothing to do with the design of this study. I just have been able to have the privilege of helping look at the data and write, write, up, the, write up the study in, in retrospect. And so they decided with their rising rate of gun violence there, um, through teamwork between the EMS uh, leaders, the EMS medical directors, and the local trauma surgery uh, director, hey, let's do something together and push this care further out into the field. We've tried everything. We've tried TXA alone. We've tried tourniquets. We've tried getting to the hospital faster, and our mortality is not changing, and people are getting keep getting shot and dying. And so they decided to implement blood, and they created a protocol where they would give for someone with um, obvious hemorrhagic shock from trauma and hypotension. So the criteria are you have to be in shock with a pressure under 90. They will initiate... They'll call the blood medic and they will initiate the transfusion protocol, which is two units of pack cells, two of TXA, two of calcium. And they're able now to accomplish that in a, about a 15 minute total pre-hospital time. So from the time they land at the scene to the time they get to the trauma center, it's about 15 minutes, half of that being transport. So short transport, right? Very. And um, compared to folks who did not get blood, same injury severity, same same injury, penetrating torso trauma, compared to the folks who did not get blood, those who got that package of two, two, and two had a, about a 20% risk of dying compared to the others. So the, the odds ratio of dying was 0.2, far, far, far reduced. And this is the first study. And again, I have, a, I have an interest because I help with this study in, in saying this, but it's the first study of ground 911 uh, agency ever to show a mortality benefit for pre-hospital blood. We all think it works. We all want to know that it works, but the data except in air medical have not been there for urban EMS. And this is the first one to show it. And so uh, it's the, not only do their vitals get better, they have their shock index is down, the pressure is better. They look better by the time they get to the hospital. In fact, one anecdote is one of the paramedics said, doc, you won't believe it. He was unresponsive at the scene. And by the time we get there, he's complaining of his tourniquets meaning <laughs> he awesome. has enough awareness now to say this hurts over here, but now he's alive. Right. And whereas he was in such hemorrhagic shock that he didn't have the, the mental capacity to even know that his arm hurt. Um, and a, a second, um, a second bit of data that came out of that is we started seeing, wait a minute, there's so far fewer intubated now. Why is that? 
Whereas the patients before, many of them came in with an advanced airway. Once mm -hmm. they started giving blood, they converted to that being the priority. Mental status improved. Patients managing their own airway now talking to the providers, and they and they defer that intubation, which itself could have caused harm in the wrong cases. So, the intubate, and you may not have to the resuscitate. You may not have to intubate. Uh, sequence kind of came from from this study and now several others that we'll be publishing. And then I'll just share, because my interest is pediatric trauma in particular, um, we don't have enough data to prove anything, but of the, I don't know, eight or 10 kids in the series who weren't dead at the scene and weren't didn't have an isolated gunshot wound to the head, every one of those kids was hypotensive in the field. Biggest risk factor for death in pediatric trauma is hypotension. So if someone comes in with a low blood pressure, they're like they're high risk of dying. Every one of those kids who got blood got to the hospital with improved physiology, and every one of them lived. And I know it's a small set, but a lot of those kids you might have expected to die: shot in the chest, in the belly, hypotensive at the scene, now resuscitated, now alive. And so we're hoping to replicate that in some other studies, other larger scale studies. But that's just a teaser with the first bits of the data. There will be several more studies coming out. It's cool stuff, um, and I think uh, should push us all along towards implementing blood in the field. I, I haven't obviously haven't had a chance to see that. Was this randomized or was this? Uh, uh... No, so so that'll be a criticism, uh, Jason, for sure. So there are none yet uh, of this in in, in the ground EMS uh, randomized trials that I know of, except in the UK. We can go into that study called the refill trial if you want mm. at another time. That didn't show a difference between blood and no blood. However, they had 90-minute pre-hospital times, and they gave a little bit of blood. Nine, so they zero, 90? Nine, zero minutes. Okay? Wow. That's a long a different, time. <laughs> a different world, a different time. I think they had to take a break for tea in the afternoon in the middle of their transport or something. And <laughs> it took them a while to get there. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm a kid. I, that's a bad joke. I, I know one of the authors. They, they, <laughs> it's just a different – it's just a different – set up over there they had long they had longer times of scene arrival longer transports but here among the population we discussed brandon short transport urban environment i think it's working and and yet there is not yet a randomized trial that i'm aware of no there is no randomized trial so this was this was jason to your question historical control so looking at the patients in the couple of years before blood was implemented comparing them to the to the couple of years after so not the most rigorous design you want, but it's the it's pre preliminary data that's very positive. So more 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 to come on that. Nice Lo logistically in that not just in that trial, but in some of these um, urban areas, logistically, how is this working with yes. getting blood to the scene? That's such a, so again, the blood medics yeah. you, typically on a supervisor vehicle, they're stationed around strategically around the city, and just like they would go to an arrest or some other high level call, they're going to show up at the scene of an accident or, or a shooting, bring the blood to the scene, join the the other crew that got there first and participate together. So that's typically how it's working in most areas. Um, South, a lot of agencies in South Florida, Virginia are doing it the same way. A supervisor vehicle is the one that has the cooler and the blood because you just can't afford to put units of blood on every single ambulance right. everywhere in the city. That's right. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get it delivered by drones one day, honestly. But right now, it's got to be someone carrying it to the scene. And sometimes it takes too long for them to get there, and the crew decides just to go. They're not going to delay. They're not going to sit there waiting for the blood. They may meet. They may create a rendezvous point and meet on the way. 
drop the blood off. That's happening as well. But that's that's the logistics of it, uh, Jason. Couple and, couple and, more. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you're no I was just going to say, uh, in, and then everyone wants to know how do you get the blood and how do you store it and how do you rotate it out? They're, they're they have a cooler at the at the station. Um, I think they keep the units for a week there, and then they go back to the hospital to be put into service in the hospital as they're near expiring. So there's no waste. There's no waste of the blood. Nice. And so, it's all whole blood, no plasma. Ah, interesting. Yeah, most agencies now are using whole. Interestingly, in New Orleans, they couldn't access whole blood. Their blood bank couldn't get that for them, so they're using pack cells, and it's it's working well. I would be an we would all be advocates of whole blood if we can get that. But once you start digging into the process, it's a more expensive project uh, product. It's it's a little more rare. It's harder to get. So not everyone can get that. And I think we're showing that pack cells is a very good blood product. Ideally, whole blood, but but pack cells are working. Awesome. Awesome. Trying right, to now you know, did you... No, 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 you're good. I'm trying to remember the question that I had. Oh, okay. So whenever we're talking about, and, and uh, I know we're going to be wrapping up here shortly, but when we're talking about administering the two, two and two, and we're yep. looking at, you know, uh, blood product, TXA and calcium, how do the dosing regimens change from pediatric to adult? Is it weight? Such a good question. Yeah. Such a good question. Go and each agency is doing it a little different. I don't hold me to this. I think in New Orleans, they're doing 10 and over. They're treating like an adult. Um, under that they're giving, I believe 10 per kilo doses of blood. So that's about what you'd want, right? A kid in shock. We're going to start with a 10 per kilo dose of blood, another 10 per kilo. If, if, if we're not fully Shock's not, not fully re reversed. And by the time you're 30 kilos, that's a whole unit of pack cells, right? 300 mils. Yeah. Or a 50 kilo kid, that's a whole unit of, of whole blood, which is 500 mils. So 10 per kilo doses titrated to effect is probably most effective. Um, when to give calcium is controversial. A lot of the military guidelines are saying a gram of calcium with each unit. Some places are giving none. Some are giving it after the second unit. I'm not going to take a stand on that here right now because there's evolving data on it. And then everybody should be getting TXA. It's just even the best evidence. There's just the best evidence for that of any of these things right now. Awesome. Not causing harm. It's helping and it's helping reduce subsequent hemorrhage in those with hemorrhagic shock, whether it's traumatic or obstetric. There's not a lot of evidence in GI hemorrhage. Just keep keep that in mind. But for trauma and OB hemorrhage, it's effective. And kids, you you're gonna. I should know the dose off the top of my head, and I can't tell you what it is, but we're per kilo dosing the TXA in kids. Awesome. Yeah. So um, people listening that don't have access to blood, I mean, obviously, in most of the country doesn't. Uh, they've got a pediatric hemorrhagic shock uh, patient who uh, obviously hypotensive, um, obtunded, and um, not doing well. What, what point do? do they give fluids? Uh, what point do they stop fluids? Yep. Um, how do you how do you guide resuscitation? Such with a good question. Products? Such a good question. So you know, there's a movement towards getting rid of all fluids and trauma, and so the pendulum has swung for from where we used to give a ton liters and liters, right, <laughs> to where everyone says give no drop. Every drop of saline is going to kill you, and and neither of those are totally right. I mean, the, the tons and tons of fluid is wrong, but the zero fluid is also has some problems. And so, yes, if you're an agency that has blood, use it in a kid. 
And a nice a dif different agencies have different thresholds for the lowest age they'll use it. I'm advocating any age if you have it. Um, there probably should be no lower threshold, even for O positive whole blood. And that's another discussion, but it's probably safe. Fluid. The biggest predictor of death is hypotension. Kids tolerate hypotension poorly, and they're falling off that hemodynamic cliff once they're hypotensive. So yes, saline, if it's the only tool you have, is very reasonable and right um, up to a point. And I think that point is about 20 per kilo, okay? So 20 per kilo dose of fluid. And there was actually good evidence for this, a big, huge study of around 20,000 patients looking at fluids versus blood first in kids. And the... 50% of kids who were in shock and got saline first, they never needed blood. It was actually effective. Hmm. Those who got more, they didn't have increased mortality. They tended to spend more time on the vent in the ICU. That was the one difference they found. But you are totally in the right lane treating shock with fluid if that's what you have. And normal saline is the, is the, is the product to use. LR, which I think a lot of us are using for sepsis now, has a low sodium content. It's 132 per liter. And so you you don't want to give hypotonic fluid to someone with a potential TBI. That's bad for the brain. So normal saline is the product to give and give it, uh, if you want to give it 10 per kilo doses, it's fine. But 20 per kilo is a, is a great starting place for someone with hypotension, even with hemorrhagic shock, especially if they're a kid. Last study I'll cite is Epic TBI, the big, huge study, again, of over 20,000 patients out in Arizona where they showed that folks with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury were more likely to live and walk out of the hospital if they were treated effectively, even with saline pre-hospital. So there's great data for this. We just don't need to be indiscriminate with the fluids. We need to use it in the right situation if that's all we have. Does that, does that seem reasonable, Jason? Yep, yep absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, one thing that I've always wanted to ask a pediatric uh, trauma specialist is, um, is permissive hypotension, yep. um, is that allowable? Is that, well, what are your thoughts on that with such a, another such a, Such a great and controversial question. So the idea with permissive hypotension came out of the military, I believe, is if you have someone with non-compressible torso trauma, a liver lack, a bullet wound, a pelvic fracture, you can't stop the bleeding yourself until you get them to the hospital. If you keep giving them volume and you get their pressure to 130, you may paradoxically make that bleed worse because you're going to pump, you're going to pop the clot. You're going to knock the clot off of where it formed on the IVC or the pelvic vessels or the liver. That probably came from an era when we gave a ton of fluid. And so that, so, so wow. over resuscitating with fluid probably made that worse because it made you cold, acidotic, and you diluted your clotting factors, right? We have not seen that in any of these pre-hospital blood studies so far that people are bleeding more when they get there because they're getting enough blood to get them in a reasonable range, 90 to 100. And so I'm not even sure that permissive hypotension in adults when we're using blood products is a thing anymore. Mm. With fluids, yes. In kids, it's a different story. Hypotension means they're falling off the hemodynamic curve and they're going to die. A kid with hypotension should worry you. And just as a reminder, 70 plus twice the age is the, is the kind of the low threshold for blood pressure in a kid 1 to 10. Everybody over 10 should have 90 minimum. Under one, they should have 70 minimum. Bit newborns and one month old should have about a 60. But 70 plus twice the age is an easy calculator. If the child is less than that, they need they need to be managed. And so I I teach that permissive hypotension is not a thing in pediatric trauma care or pediatric shock. 
So no, Excellent. don't overdo it. Not indiscriminate fluids, but none of us pre-hospital are really over resuscitating ever, right? We don't have the time or the, probably the, the products to do it. So I don't think, yeah. I don't think it's a worry. An Epic TBI showed that as well. No one was bleeding to death of non-compressible trauma mm. because they got their, their blood pressure treated with saline and Epic TBI. So it's not a thing in kids. I, I feel comfortable taking a stand on that. And I'm happy to, I'm happy to get on here and argue with a surgeon. Someday, if you want to, you want to set, up, <laughs> set up a debate, let's do it. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Peel, thank you so much for your time. Um, if if folks, if our listeners want to uh, want to catch you on social media to see what you're up to, or um, even to learn more about the uh, LifeFlow device, um, what how could they uh, how could they connect with you? Um. One, I'm happy to, uh, so I'm not a big tweeter or Xer anymore. I don't know what you call it. Um, <laughs> are you an Xer? If you post them a lot, um, I do have a Twitter handle uh, at Mark Peel, but you, you're free to reach out there. I'll, I'm happy to put my email up on your show notes, show notes, mpeel at uh, 410medical.com. That's my company, 410 Medical. And you can see a lot about the life flow there, uh, the studies I've published. Um Lastly, if you want to learn about IO insertion, just Google doctor drills his own leg and you'll find my uh, IO insertion video into my own leg. So I completely you, forgot about you that. You can find me, you can find me there as well. Okay. <laughs> I forgot about that. I hope you saw that at the conference. So, so yeah. yeah, happy to, I'm honestly happy to be contacted by email, uh, Twitter, or uh, you can write me on the website there too. Excellent. All right, guys. It's well, been, it's been a privilege talking to you. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Dr. Peel. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.